Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Joining us today will be Jonathan Clemens, a physician assistant who works in uh, eating disorder recovery. This is the second episode we've had with him since there's so much to cover on this topic. Uh, I think you're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to discuss topics such as holy anorexia or anorexia mirabilis and uh, manorexia, among other things. So, Chris, why are we going back to the well on this one? Well, I mean, sadly, I suppose, but uh, relevantly, this is a this is an important topic, much more than one episode, maybe more than two episodes can cover. I mean, just this topic of eating disorders, um, you know, it affects people of every age, shape and size and color and uh, origin and orientation and anything else that you can think of. It's not picky, not picky at all. And that means really any one of us, any one of our children, any one of our friends or our children's friends for that matter, could and likely will at some point be affected by an eating disorder. Just some numbers to try to put that in perspective. About 9% of the U.S. population, that's almost 30 million people, will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. I mean, that takes a lot to just sort of process that number of people. 30 million people. Um, That's no small thing, is it? Um, uh, The other thing that that strikes me as interesting is fewer than 6% of people that are diagnosed with an eating disorder will also be diagnosed as underweight. And I think what's meaningful about that, and I look forward um, to talking to Jonathan about it, is you can't look at someone and say, oh, I bet they have an eating disorder. Uh, Or maybe maybe more correctly, you can't look at someone and say, I'm sure they don't have an eating disorder uh, based just on the way they look. Um, But even even more important, about 10,000 deaths a year occur from eating disorders. If you do the math, that's about a death per hour. Uh, from something that I think, I, I don't know about you, it just doesn't get talked about very much, um, at least not in sort of polite social circles, does it? Um, maybe not, but, you know, I do hear about it occasionally uh, within my circles now, and maybe that's because people are becoming less afraid to talk about it, which is good because people can get healed instead of just uh, ignoring it. Like I remember in high school, you'd see people like that, but nobody talked about it, or if they did, it was kind of to make fun of somebody. It was pretty sad. For sure. You know, I mean, some other, just to put a, a money figure on it, you and I are both business, small business owners, <laughs> about $64 billion, that's with a B, dollars a year are spent towards eating disorders. So for so many reasons, the answer of your question, why should we talk about this? It's really important. Now, in, in my career as an OBGYN, I see all mostly young women, and I've encountered too many, more than I can remember, cases of eating disorders in, in young women. And a few of the characteristics really stand out and look forward to maybe having a chance to talk with Jonathan about it. But often it's extremely difficult to get information from the patient um, and maybe even from her family, um, You know, leading a lot of people to say, this is really a family disorder more than it is an individual disorder, but not uncommon to encounter reams of denial, levels and levels of denial and family members that this particular person in front of you may actually have a problem. I know in our own family, a young woman had been hospitalized two or three times with pancreatitis before uh, her family could actually come to grips with the fact that she had an eating disorder. Uh, so the family was denying it as much as the patient? Exactly. Yeah, I remember one of the things Jonathan said last time that I really liked, he said a good question to start with that isn't an attacking type question is how would you describe your relationship with food? I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, you know, the, the idea that even your relationship with food is anything other than I'm hungry and I eat um, <laughs> is, a, is a great screening tool, but it is a serious problem that deserves our attention. I tend to think of it um, when we're, when we're thinking in these terms of almost like domestic abuse or domestic violence, when we in healthcare workers, as healthcare workers, when we see something, you know, we need to say something. Even if it's not our area of expertise, you, you might actually save someone's life just by pointing out 
maybe there's an issue. Maybe we should try to get someone who's an expert like our guest Jonathan is. Oh, yes. And it's, you know, I've looked recently. It's hard to even enter the system for this because it seems like there's such big walls or mystery about it. And uh, I think that could be made a lot easier because it's really expensive to get treated for eating disorders. Now, do you see in your practice as a dermatologist, have you come across particularly young women? I think it's more common, but have you seen eating disorder patients that you knew about? That I knew about? No, I only suspected a couple uh, female acne patients whose acne was bad because they had no body fat. So they had so much androgens driving their acne, so much male hormones that there was no treatment that would work. Uh, But those are the only ones I thought may have had an eating disorder, but no, not commonly. Well, I think the takeaway for listeners is please pay attention. This is important stuff. Uh, and if it hasn't affected you or someone you love, that's wonderful. Uh, but there's a pretty good chance it could. Um, and you never know when you're going to be confronted with this. It's worth knowing a lot more about. Well, I look forward to talking to Jonathan. But before that, we have our medical trivia question of the day. That we do. And, the, and yes, who knew? And the category is muscle and fat. Simple question. What weighs more, a kilogram of fat or a kilogram of muscle? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer. But we'll be back with Jonathan Clemens and more on eating disorders here on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We have with us our guest, physician assistant Jonathan Clemens. Among other things, Jonathan is a physician assistant at the EMILY program, an eating disorder clinic in Lacey, Washington, where he's been treating eating disorders for more than three years. Jonathan, welcome back to Dr. Doctor to, to give us more information that we need to know on eating disorders. Thank you very much. So you mentioned last time, um, and you've mentioned in your talks, that um, we should regularly be asking ourselves as healthcare professionals about what is a patient's relationship with uh, food. And so how do we raise children to have a healthy relationship with food? And then the second part would be, what if an adult doesn't have a healthy relationship, how can they establish it? So take that whichever way you want to go. (laughs) Okay. So that's uh, not quite as difficult as solving world hunger, but um, solving our relationships with food. Um, in, in a culture that's focused on appearance as value, food becomes a means to an end or a, a, a temptation, uh, probably inappropriately so in both cases. Uh, God is the author of food. I mean, the first thing he makes is a garden to put people in. And uh, it's not an ornamental garden, but it's full of fruit for eating. Um, And and so getting back to uh, sort of a Christian anthropology is is food is for sustenance. Uh, Food is uh, a blessing from God. Um, We we see this throughout the scriptures. So getting away from food as an evil to be minimized while at the same time um, seeing it as something to be used appropriately. We, we eat to fuel our bodies, um, to carry on our lives. And once you depart from Christian anthropology and uh, seeing ourselves as in relationship with God, our provider, uh, things start to get really wonky. Um, well, let me give you an example that I heard today, Jonathan, I heard mm-hmm. somebody talking and over half the time they were talking to these other people that I couldn't help overhearing because of where I was, they were talking about food and what they eat at restaurants and what they order and all the sizes were supersized. And it's like, I've heard this person over a series of days and that is over half of the conversation they have while working. That doesn't sound like a healthy relationship with food. And I, I bet it's not an uncommon relationship. What would you right. say about that? So somebody, you know, uh, certainly there is a sin of gluttony, which is which is a a desire for the sensuality. Um, much much as other things, we can focus on our senses rather than on the purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, eating too much, eating more than is ne- needed to be satisfied, is, is something we see quite a lot. I mean, uh, large portions. Sure, it becomes it becomes either something we're habituated to or something we were deathly afraid of um, rather than focus on 
eating moderation, what your what your appetite feels for at that time, and really not falling into the trap of. Um, again, I've I've not reviewed the literature myself, but I. I, I'm willing to grant that ultra processed foods are in fact designed to be addictive. Yes. They are in, yes. endorphin, endorphin creating, and we can have an addiction to them as much as we could to um, nicotine or caffeine or other, other substances that, you know, um, we just certainly don't need in the quantities we desire. You know, thinking specifically or more specifically about children uh, interestingly, I, I'm a grandparent now, and so I spend a, an unusual amount of time with toddlers at the table. <laughs> and, uh, and anyone who's done that knows that it can be challenging. And I mean, it's occurred to me, especially in preparing for this, how bizarre sometimes our relationship with food is. I mean, we use it as an award uh, a lot for good behavior. You know, we celebrate with food. Um, you know, my kids get a good grade. I want to take them out to dinner to celebrate. Um, and then I've caught myself telling one of my grandchildren, no, you, you can't get down until you eat more. And, and then afterwards I think, well, maybe they ate enough. Why do I want them to eat more? But, but it's so ingrained in our, in our culture that it's really hard to know in the moment. Uh, but, but, you know, to Tom's earlier question, what, what should our messaging to children be about food and a, and a healthy relationship with food? Well, um, there are undoubted countless opinions on that. Um, uh, I would say, you know, to your to your point, I would say one of the things we've noticed is over the past several decades, we've gone from a culture of want and a culture of uh, insufficient access to now where we have way too much available. Um, you you Drowning look at calories, yeah, at the calories available in your average gas station. Um, you know, quick mart and feed a small town for, for weeks, right? Now they're, not, they're all processed. So you get the, the, um, the rush of, of the sugar and caffeine and everything else that's involved. But teaching kids is, is, you know, um, I, I think, I think minimizing use of food as a reward and punishment is probably a good idea. Again, I'm speaking just, just in, t in terms of, of my, my observations, this is, you know, and the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, it's probably fair to assume anyone roughly our age grew up and at some point their parents told them, clean your plate. Because um, there are kids in, in certain <laughs> areas country here who are starving. And, exactly. And I think that is generational wisdom that has become less effective as food has become more and more, say, addictive. Mm. Now, um, I, w I will say I have had a number of patients who had food insecurity. So not everybody has enough, especially those raised in single-parent homes, um, other, other childhood traumas, um, a scarcity is a, a source of a long-term wound just in terms of, of, I never want to be hungry again, like I was when I was a five-year-old. Yeah. And, and that sort of, that sort of trauma can, can drive people into disproportionate, um, intake. Now, how to keep kids from getting there? I'd say love on them. Um, display uh, good um, attitudes towards food. Uh, I, I would encourage families to, uh, again, as we, we talked last time, share family dinners together at least. In fact, eat as much together as a family as you can because that reinforces, well, not only is it better rather than microwaving individual servings or anything like that, but mm -hmm. to eat as a family a shared meal, um, you're going to have uh, typically a better selection um, a more economical to do it that way, just in terms of, of cost. Sure. And, 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 a, and an effort and a hope to always keep that relationship healthy. Fast forward a few years from my toddler grandchildren to, uh, and my practice as an OBGYN, I see a lot of teenaged women. And, you know, the, the parent side of me sees maybe a 13, 14, 15 year old who is probably a bit overweight and you're thinking, 
there's a lifetime of pain and suffering ahead of you. Um, you should you should fix this. But as a parent, it would be very easy to cross the line from we need to make healthier choices to now I'm shaming you for being overweight and you're going to develop a very unhealthy relationship with eating. That just well, that's almost unmanageable as a parent. It, it's a challenge because um, the elephant in the room about weight loss is that it doesn't work. All right. Um, if you look at people who lose weight within three years, within within one year, about 75% of them will have gained the weight back and probably some more. And then within three years, it's as high as 97%. So maybe oh one God. in 30 persons who starts a diet succeeds mm-hmm. at it at the three-year mark. Wow. And and so that's a really challenging statistic. So, you're, so are you saying don't try to lose weight? Well, what I would say is it's better never to have gained the weight in the first place. <laughs> um, we, we know what homeostasis is. As, as organisms, our, our, our physical bodies want to maintain how they are. If you don't drink, you get thirsty and your body is inclined, um, well, prompts you to drink. Same way with food. Once you um, have additional um, fat cells in your body, when you try and lose weight, those fat cells will send out chemical messengers, hormones saying, hey, I'm hungry. I need to get back to where I was. And that's that's des- described as, as set point theory of weight, that your body tries to preserve what it's gotten. And that can be really, really useful in, again, um, times of, of, of starvation, right? The, the fact that, that Christ fasted for 40 days is not unreasonable. That's about when things start really breaking down. But um, it, as as organisms, God designed us to be be very durable for want, and we don't fare as well when we have all that we can eat. Um, you know, every meal if we want. So, Jonathan, if someone is overweight, what are what are they to do? It sounds like they are without hope. <laughs> well, no, I, I think I think um, there's there's a number of things. Well, first, I'm not giving uh, anybody specific medical advice. They should talk to uh, right. <laughs> you know, a, a therapist about their individual situation. But in general, um, I think one of the things that uh, we as as believers should do is reject the notion that weight equals value. Mm. So um, human beings come in all, all different sorts of heights and skin colors and, and whatnot. And we see those as being perfectly okay. But if somebody is too skinny or too high-weighted, um, do we see them as being cursed with that by God? Do we, do we see that as, as necessarily a, a, a bad physicality? I'm not sure we should, as certainly not to the extent that the culture does, which says you have to be a certain size or else you're going to have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the reality is that there is definitely weight discrimination out there. Jonathan, I'd like to move into a question we got from a listener who heard the first episode you were on, and she said she enjoyed listening about children in eating disorders, but she was wondering about addressing adults in eating disorders, but particularly people with developmental disabilities. What should we know about people with those disabilities and eating disorders? Well, uh, if you've if you've met one adult with a developmental disability, you've met one adult with a developmental disability. Uh, they are, <laughs> exactly. they, they vary, they vary, and depending on what sort of, of issue you have, if it's cognitive, um, they may not have the autonomy to pick good foods for themselves all the time. And as a, um, a as somebody who's taking care of them, there may be a little bit more paternalism. It's like, no, really, here's some vegetables, eat them, honest, um, <laughs> you know, uh, much like we would with with uh, small children, trying to give a, a variety of healthy, natural, appropriate foods with, you know, the occasional treat mixed in to give a, a full spectrum of experience. Um, now, individual um, medical challenges can create uh, particular problems. Um, 
one of one of uh, a continuing education course I was in noted that if somebody is a very good, well compliant type one diabetic, where uh, again type one diabetes, the body makes no insulin, so you have to match insulin intake via injection with right. the food. Intake. If somebody's if somebody's a well controlled type one diabetic they're already halfway or more towards an eating disorder in terms of how much they have to be fixated on what they what they take in. Right. So that's a particularly challenging one. I would say um, I don't do it, deal as much with physical disabilities as past emotional trauma. In okay. terms of see, seeing people who have issues that come out in terms of poor eating habits. Um, well, I think you've addressed it well. I'd like to get into two things I promised viewer or listeners at the beginning of this show, and that was manorexia and anorexia mirabilis. Which one would like would you like to tackle first? Oh, okay. Let's talk about manorexia. All so, right. Um, at any given body mass index, um, a male is going to be sicker than a female, uh, just because um, of the bone structure and whatnot. Uh, boys and men uh, should weigh a little bit more than women do relative to their height, which is how BMI is generated, body mass index. And, and so if you're looking strictly at weight and height cutoffs, boys will be sicker before they're referred. Ah, uh, okay. There's, there's also a, a whole lot of um, pressure, not necessarily to be thin, but to be buff in terms of muscle mass and trying to, you know, develop a six pack, um, you know, get real good muscle definition. It's, it's different from, from uh, males and females, but there's still social pr pressure to appear um, as an idealized rather than a real person. Mm. So um, because anorexia and bulimia, the, the eating disorders people have heard of, Right, those are always portrayed as involving women, right? Um, and because of that, there's a stigma in terms of men um, seeking help, and there's kind of a blind spot in terms of pra medical practitioners looking at their male patients and asking if they have an eating disorder. So we have this this whole kind of silent epidemic of of men um, who have eating disorders but they are neither um, diagnosed nor treated. I did have one patient, um, doctorate level medical professional, uh, who had been dealing with bulimia for, I believe it was over 30 years by the time oh. he first sought treatment. So well, that, it's out there, it's not very common. It was not very commonly identified uh, and it can be it can go undetected and and really run people's lives for years. But more specifically, then, manorexia is going to be sort of a, an umbrella term for eating disorders in men. Would you say? Yeah, especially the kind where they're they're rather than trying to lose weight, they're just trying to sculpt their body and gain muscle mass. Uh -huh. So uh, there's a desire to um, you know uh, look like the movie stars as they train for these superhero roles, where they are buff and ripped and and they derive their value from that. Well, so it's slightly different than than a, than a more tr typical uh, or um, uh, the sort of anorexia you'll see in, in women where it's very focused on just losing weight. And it, as with so many mental disorders, it seems like there's a, there's a line at which something becomes abnormal. Tom and I are both fathers of teenage boys. We, we all know you're going to find them in the bathroom posing in front of the mirror. Um, <laughs> That happens all the time, yes. uh, which is a normal part, I think, of adolescent male development. But at some point, hearing you talk, that becomes pathological. Sure. Um, and eating disorders exist on a spectrum. You have healthy, normal eating, and then you have disordered eating, and then you have an eating disorder. And you get into an eating disorder when you meet the DSM-5 criteria, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistic mm -hmm. Manual. Statistical manual of um, of mental disorders. <laughs> if you meet those criteria, you have an eating disorder, but you can be on your way towards one without meeting those criteria. And I think I, I think the most important thing for parents to do for kids is again to reinforce, hey, you know what, <laughs> you're disappointed with your body. That's okay. It's still changing. Um, 
puberty is unkind to everybody at the same time. And um, I don't think there is there exists a, a teen who in the throes of puberty actually likes it. I, I think it's one of one of those experiences where parental reassurance, you know, we, we tell the, the kids this all the time. You know, I've been through this. Your mother's been through this. Uh, everybody, you know, all the adults, you know, went through a period of not liking how their body looked, feeling like it's uncoordinating, feeling like it's disproportionate. And yet we all survived. And so will you. Jonathan, one more topic we'd like to cover before the break, and that is anorexia mirabilis. Actually, this will probably air during Lent uh, when people are thinking more about fasting. Anorexia mirabilis refers to saints who were thinner than was probably good for them. Tell us what the definition of that is and, and how it's uh, misused by some lay people as an excuse for being too thin. Well, I, I don't know that anorexia mirabilis has a formal definition. I've not run across one. It really is it's a, a phenomenon that's been described. And I, I think probably the best well-known case is Catherine of Siena, yes. um, whose, whose confessor documented all the issues she'd had with it. So um, I'm, I'm expecting most of, the, most of the audience is fairly familiar with her, but probably not necessarily. I mean, she's a young woman, great accomplishments, but she died at age 33, um, probably of anorexia and, and simply self-starvation. Right. So what started as devotion, probably, I'm guessing that she probably had some genetic tendencies towards anorexia and that with repeated fasting, it became normative to her and to the point where at, at some points in her life, she ate nothing but the Eucharist. Right. Uh, and so, and so that's, I mean, saints are, are, saints are human, fallible human beings who've done wonderful things. And this is, it's entirely consistent with sort of the obsessive nature of anorexia to be very fixated on something. In, in modernity, in modernity, it's typically appearance and approval of other people. But in the um, in the fifteenth century, fourteenth, uh, fourteenth, fourteenth century, you're 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 dealing with um, a world where the church and devotion to God is the most important thing in many people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, as as a as a religious sister, uh, as they existed in that time. This was rewarded and reinforced, much like people will say to a, a developing anorexic young woman, "Oh, you look so thin! How wonderful!" Sure. So yeah. when you when you take some someone and reinforce something like, "Wow, you fast more than everyone else does," I'm, mm. I'm of course speaking colloquially. I'm I have no idea how her <laughs> her, her fellow sisters would have actually phrased it. Um, but that became a challenge for her and ultimately appears to be the proximate cause of her death. And wow. again, we, this is not some woke reinterpretation of a great saint, but really what was documented by her confessor mm -hmm. in her his biography of her, which was used uh, in her canonization. So this is just looking through a new lens at old travails. And I think the... Um, the ultimate answer is, is anything can be done to an excess, even uh, fasting out of devotion, because we are, fail, uh, we are fallible human creatures. Um, and uh, these sorts of things can become, can go beyond devotion into an obsession. Well, Jonathan, we're going we're gonna to fallibly leave it there and, uh, and step away for a break. But we'll be right back to hear much more about eating disorders with our guest here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And now with Jonathan Clemens, we're going to talk about some specific cases of eating disorders to see what we can learn from them. And I know, Jonathan, you have a case of somebody with OSFED, a non-specified eating disorder and other disorder that just started boom like that. Tell us about what happened. So this was a, uh, uh, is a young woman who, um, uh, survived a stranger rape. Um, and before that had been a little bit of a picky eater. 
Um, but after that, really um, was restricting very, very severely. We're not talking trying to stay under 1,200 calories. We're talking uh, 400 calories, maybe nothing wow. in, a, in a given day. And so this, this um, developed very rapidly. Interestingly enough, it, uh, it, it was counted as OSFED because all the other diagnoses such as anorexia require it to have happened over time. Um, so if, if, if something is of limited frequency or duration, that's often what counts as an other uh, specified disorder. Now, how did she come to your attention, Jonathan? So uh, again, um, at working at an eating disorder center, this is where pediatricians, uh, family practice, general practitioners, whatnot, refer folks to us. Uh, sometimes um, uh, social workers, psychologists, and certainly dietitians, if anybody goes, if you go to see a dietitian and they find you have an eating disorder, they'll either, if it's nothing they can handle, they'll, they'll send you on to uh, one of the multidisciplinary centers. And so this is a pretty severe case. Um, happened during COVID uh, and uh, I, it got to us uh, through a referral. I think that's probably what I'm going to say for, for patient confidentiality. And about how long uh, after the rape did that happen? Six weeks. Did you see her? Six uh, months. No, no, six weeks. Six weeks. So six yeah. weeks of minimal to no eating. Yeah, that, and that and that's a that's a very serious situation. Um, you know that, that can cause problems if you try and feed somebody who starved themselves or who has been mm -hmm. starved. Uh, you have to do that carefully. Um, lest you get electrolyte imbalances and, and it's, it's called refeeding disorder or refeeding syndrome. Um, yes. So what's so interesting, so interesting from a trauma, traumatic uh, perspective in that the, you know, the insult occurred and then the result of that was this other disorder, uh, you know, right. an unusual kind of coping almost it sounds. A lot of, a lot of trauma is more subtle than that. That was, that was very definitive. Right, but sure. a lot of times, um, um, you'll you'll find that we we mentioned food insecurity um, in childhood, but also childhood sexual abuse, um, mm -hmm. other traumas, even ones that people wouldn't say, "Oh, this was terrible." Well, it may be terrible enough to lead for that to that problem for that person. Um, I, I, you know, we we don't grade trauma. Trauma happens to us. Um, or to the people we love, and so um, those sorts of things can um, can certainly certainly prompt um, the beginning. So, what of happened to this uh, patient, Jonathan? So she starved herself really for six weeks or so. Residential uh, care, um, outpatient care, and doing better. Um, but what were the steps that brought her back? So the the first thing the the first thing you you have to do is identify a problem. In this case, it was it was not a big not a big hurdle to do, uh, and the second one would be to connect with the right resources. Third, it would be to get insurance approval. This can sometimes be a, a problem, especially uh, for patients who start in higher weighted bodies. So, if you have somebody who starts at a at, at what would be considered medically um, overweight. Uh, the insurance companies are not usually really good at looking at, well, this person's starving themselves. Uh, uh, so they look at the raw weight and say, well, they're, they're still fine. Why don't you just deal with it as an outpatient rather than making them spend money? Sure. So, um, and then it was a matter of getting the patient to an appropriate um, level of care. In that case, that would be, it was res residential care where somebody is in a facility 24 seven with um, eating disorder technicians, counselors, therapists, dietitians, medical support. It's an integrated program for round the clock focused on pretty much um, restoring good eating habits, uh, whether that's um, uh, ending restriction or ending purging or getting binges dialed back to where somebody's just eating normally, but normalizing all of those so that the physiological issues are, are stabilized. So Jonathan, patient, that sounds somewhat counterintuitive in that a lot of the problems is too much focus on food. And it sounds like if I'm going to be in a place for 24 seven, just focus on food, that sounds like it could be counterproductive. How is it not counterproductive? 
So what you've got is you've got a bunch of people talking about healthy attitudes towards food. Uh, uh, sure. Where, where um, the meal plans are custom made for each person by a registered dietitian based on mm-hmm. their specific um, issues. Now, sure. there, there can be problems with that, um, especially um, uh, uh, a professor uh, I, I know of uh, dealt with anorexia both as anorexia in, in her youth and then later on after having gained weight as atypical anorexia, that is anorexia where the patient starts at a higher weight. And that the experiences they endured were uh, very negative because there was there was uh, um, a lack of respect for the fact of starvation, and they were looking at the patient's maintained weight as still a problem to be solved. Again, you have somebody who's a higher-weighted individual. They can have binge eating disorder and need to be scaled back in terms of what they're eating, or they can be starving themselves with atypical anorexia and really need their, uh, n- their nutrients restored because their, their body is, is, is simply starving, even though it, it, it weighs more than your average starving person does. Jonathan, you also mentioned offline that something fairly common are eating disorders in young moms. What, what's common there? Okay, so the, 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 probably the most common time for women to be diagnosed with an eating disorder is in college. Uh, they're going off on their own, don't have their same coping mechanisms, are on a meal plan, and oh, by the way, are around a lot of people who see a lot of other young women with eating disorders. So your college health center is going to be one of the best places to make that diagnosis. Now, what happens if they don't get caught and develop an eating disorder that either doesn't get so severe it lands them in the hospital or identified by a medical practitioner? Because once you get out of college, you know, those are the healthiest years of your life. And so you're often not seeing a medical practitioner that often. So in these cases, you can have, I guess, for a lack of a better word, kind of partial remission or smoldering eating disorders where um, somebody's having their, their, their joy of food and, and their health kind of impaired, but not to the point where it's leading them to be hospitalized. So um, somebody may have you just, just a very obsessive focus on restriction and maintaining a weight that preoccupies them, but they never get to the point where they're continually dropping like you see in the classic um, anorexia. And that's um, that sort of a, a, of a semi-remission is, is all too common. In fact, most people with eating disorders who aren't in active treatment are going to be fighting a struggle all by themselves with these um, unfortunate behaviors. Uh, one, one patient mentioned uh, that her her reason for getting treatment was her um, preschool-aged daughter had asked her, Mommy, why do you make yourself throw up? Wow. And um, that was a wake-up call to her that um, she didn't want this to be a generational thing. She wanted better for her daughter. And um, I don't remember um, what the what the origin origin of her particular eating disorder was, but she definitely did not want her daughter imprinting on what she knew to be um, horrible coping mechanisms for dealing with her stress. So, how did this mom go about getting treatment when she had young child in the home? So um, that's a challenge. Um, oftentimes, well, <laughs> with COVID, we've had a lot of virtual. Um, and really, since COVID started, I have been um, supporting eating disorders patients virtually. It's it's it lacks a lot um, in terms of there's things you lose by not being able to lay lay eyes on and lay hands on uh, when necessary your patients. I've um, uh, looked at non-suicidal self injuries such as cutting. Um, through a through an iPhone camera, I mean, it's like I can't really see. You know, that looks okay to me, but you know, I would really like um, <laughs> to have my own eyes on that injury. Um, so that's that's a, a good and bad sort of thing. Virtual programming is here to stay. 
Um, just because COVID has shown us that we can do it in certain circumstances, even though in person is better. And I think young moms are, or, you know, anyone with kids at home is going to be able to find a place that will work with them. The other sorts of folks who really don't get care or didn't before COVID were those outside of major metro areas. Integrated eating disorders centers are expensive. Um, and you really can't have one out in in the sticks. You're just not going to have enough people there. But the people who are there really need it. So what that's one of the wonderful things about um, about virtual care is in the last three years, I've dealt with patients and supported patients in every corner of my state. So that state licensing is by state, and so so all 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 the care needs to be de- delivered within the bounds of the state the program's organized. Mm. There's no reason it couldn't be done other than regulatory, but um, that provided a lot of opportunities for people who lived, you know, an hour away from really the nearest big town. So, Jonathan, I'm aware that some of these partial virtual that are not 24-7 might have the the person, the patient on three times a week for three hours at a time. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure you know, picture to myself, what is going on for three hours that's going to make this engaging, helpful, worthwhile? Sure. I've, I've, I've seen six hours, five days a week. That's called partial hospitalization. And people who are that sick get, get a medical provider assigned to them, practitioner, excuse me. But what's going on during this time? I mean, I, I can bear with a screen, you know. In a three-hour program, you're probably going to have one meal and one snack. In a six-hour program, you're going to have two meals and a snack in between. And one of the things you'll find is, is that these, the, the folks with active eating disorders have trouble finishing meals. And so this becomes an active coaching and mutual support um, where uh, the food is it's better, it's better in person, but we'd still try and make it work virtually. So the food is brought together. You've got um, counselors, staffers, eating disorders, technicians, wow. working with people, and doing doing tricks like here, you take a bite, I'll take a bite, and actually eating with the people for whom this is this is such a difficult traumatic experience. And so you have again the the the, uh, um, the meal plans are prepared individually by dietitians and then supported compassionately by the staff. Now in between uh, um, the eating instances, you've got yoga, expressive arts, individual therapy, group therapy. Um, and expressive arts can be a number of different things depending on the program. And, and so um, I don't know that it's half, half 50, 50 eating and 50 and 50% um, nutrition education, for example, that's, that's a group, a group support course. And so um, you really have to break down people's thought patterns that led to this. Um, We don't just want people to comply. I mean, the whole point is to give people freedom um, to choose what feels good, what a a diet they'd actually like to eat that matches their body's needs. And so they're not feeling guilty about it. And so um, typically uh, the, uh, the, Average person will spend six weeks in some in a program like that. Some uh, a lot less, some way more. Again, depending on how long it's been. Um, another reason early diagnosis is so important. Some people have decades to unlearn. Wow. I, I, the oldest patient I've ever I've ever treated was seventy. So, um, and I've had multiple patients in their fifties. Uh, who have been dealing with this since their teen years. And um, again, it's, it's stolen so much of life from them. And there's so much of their, their worth and value is tied up in what they look like um, that it's, it, it's not something that can be fixed overnight. We can just say, oh, here's a sheet here. It'll tell you how to eat. You're good, but um, it would be nice. It would be nice if it was that simple, but um Again, we're, we're modeling um, good habits and really helping people develop um, their own style. Really, it's like, it's like here, you're going to give us some of your autonomy. We're going to teach you how to eat, and then we're going to give it back to you. And really, as, as people step down through these levels of care, 
more and more is on them with um, less direction, more support, so that they can um, really take the lessons they've learned, adapt it to their own life, and make it work. So they so they're really healed rather than just minimize the symptoms for now. Jonathan, if listeners can remember just one thing that you've talked about the last show and this show, what would it be? Ah, well, I, I'd say I'd say a, a good view of, of food and eating depends on Christian anthropology. There are plenty of ways to uh, to get people to stop having problems with eating behavior. But I'd say the best one is to focus on on the goodness of God, the sufficiency of his creation, and the purpose and joy of food in our lives, as well as, of course, that we are people beloved, um, people for whom Christ died. I, I think when you, when you have that sort of an inter internal vision of your worth, uh, it becomes a lot easier to not use food as a substitute for a wound um, or an absence of God in terms of our meaning, worth, and value. And finally, what would be the best resources you'd recommend uh, listeners go to if they want to learn more? Um, so uh, National Eating Disorders Organization, N or Association, NEDA, I don't remember their website. I'm sure we can look it up and put it in the show notes. Yes. Um, for uh, for, for uh, medical practitioners, um, the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, IAEDP, is a great resource um, for learning about how to get involved in helping and caring for folks. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. God bless you. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the answer of this week's trivia question. Dealing with what else but, you know, food in a sense, anyway. Get <laughs> away, Tom. Fat versus muscle. Who's the winner? That's right. What weighs more, a pound of muscle or a pound of fat? Hopefully, you got the attempt at dad humor in there. They weigh exactly the same. A pound is a pound the, the world around. Or a kilogram is the way I asked at the beginning of the show. You but actually, it yeah. isn't even weight. It's mass. That's all another discussion, and don't worry about it. But really what I wanted to get at, you know, the question really is, which is denser? You know, so, and the fact is that one is more dense than water and one is less dense. Uh, but the difference was actually less than expected. Um you know, fat is about 92% the density of water, therefore it floats. Muscle mm. is about 6% more dense than water, but there's only a 15% difference. Now, I was thinking it might be, you know, muscle would be twice as much. No, it's a lot closer. But yes, muscle is more dense than fat, just not a whole lot. And so, just Chris, ask anyone who's ever tried to float in the pool. Um, yes. The really lean person doesn't float very well. But the person with a little more fat, they float a lot better and a lot easier. You are absolutely right. <laughs> so, Chris, what uh, what top three takeaways do we have from this episode? Yeah, I, you know, as an overreaching concept, I hope listeners have a sense of just how pervasive eating disorders are, and um, and I suppose just how serious they are. Uh, so, it's worth thinking about. It's worth paying attention to. We have some rather bizarre cultural habits, particularly here in the West, where we're just drowning in calories. Um, and we really all need to think about a healthier relationship with food, uh, regardless of our of our body size. But uh, one of the things that he said that I really liked that struck me is this idea that at any given body mass index or BMI, uh, a male will be sicker, so to speak, than a female, uh, partly because men are going to resist treatment so long. Um, but that's something to keep in mind. Um, but at any given moment, the male person with an eating disorder is in more trouble than the female. You know, the second one was, I like this idea about adolescents and kids, you know, where he said, parents to your kids, so you hate your body. All of us have hated our body at some point. Um, this yes. too shall pass. <laughs> you have a whole lifetime to learn not to hate your body. You know, it's okay. Uh, isn't that good parenting advice outside of food? You know, one of the things we offer as parents to our children is, experience. We have, we've all stood where you're standing. And by, by virtue of the fact that we're still sitting here talking to you, we've survived. 
so take my advice and just be patient. This is going to pass. Uh, and then the, the last thing that he implied in so many ways, this idea of trauma uh, and, and the story, the very sad story that he gave of the rape patient, you know, food is never going to fill a hole that trauma creates. Right. Um, and in many ways, my words, not his, the eating disorder is really the symptom of the deeper and more serious underlying problem. And without getting at that, uh, the, the food problem is not going to go away. Amen to that. And I'd refer listeners to our shows we've done with uh, Dr. Bob Schutz and his work with healing of many types of wounds because that can help greatly. But we thank you again for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. If you want, you can find all of our old shows on our website, drdoctor.org, and search them under episode archive by topic or guest. And we also offer our video version of our podcast. If for some unexplainable reason you want to watch us instead of just listening to us, check us out at the place Tom mentioned, drdoctor.org. And also, if you've got a question you'd like to ask us, click on submit a question. We'd love to hear what you think, what you'd like to hear about, and your impressions of some of the work that we've done. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're both signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.